Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. She's asking a question that I've been asking myself now that um, this year I am about to turn 60. The question that I want to talk with you about, the question that I've been thinking about, and it was really raised here in that dramatic introduction, is this simple question, and that is, does your life really matter? In the grand scheme of things, does your existence on earth really make a difference? It's an interesting question. As you think about several thousand years of history and you just happen to be here for a few brief years, does your life matter? I know it matters to you. I know it matters to God. But sometimes I think we wonder that about ourselves. Am I really making a difference? Well, we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Ruth. And before we turn to the book of Ruth and and look at what we're seeing in this amazing portion of Scripture, only four chapters long, would you bow your heads with me in prayer because I believe God wants to speak to your hearts tonight. Lord Jesus, we thank you um, that we matter to you and that you demonstrated how important we are by sending your son Jesus to die for us to be raised from the dead for us, and to give us the gift of eternal life. So we thank you for that. As we consider this portion of Scripture tonight, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, Pastor James took us through the book of Judges. And if you were here, you may recall that he described about 400 years of history that was some of the darkest in the, in the life of the people of Israel. He used a diagram he called the circle of pain because this really does represent what was happening with the Israelites. They would sin and God would deal with their sin by sending famines or defeat in battle or oppression by a neighboring country. That led to intense pain. They would then cry out and groan for a deliverer, for God to come save them. God would bring salvation by a judge. He would raise a judge up, anoint him, and empower him with the Holy Spirit, conquer their enemies, give them peace and rest for a short period of time. But as soon as they had relief, they returned right back to the ways that they lived before and pursued even greater sin and apostasy. The main reason why Israel continued to repeat this circle of pain is mentioned in the last verse of the book of Judges. It says in Judges 21-25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everybody was making it up as they went along. And as they did, you see in the book of Judges that people were constantly doing what seemed right, but the book of Proverbs tells us there is a way that seems right unto a man, but it leads to the way of death. And that's exactly what you read in the book of Judges. People suffering 
because of the sinful choices they're making in life. By the time you get through with the book of Judges, one of the questions that we might be inclined to ask ourselves is, was there anybody righteous? Was there anybody that was really living for God for four centuries while all of this was going on? And so for that reason, I'm glad that God put the book of Ruth right after the book of Judges. It's like a breath of fresh air. It's like this diamond that is set against a black background. And you learn in the book of Ruth that there were a few righteous people who were living in the land at the time. Now, I, I need to say a few things um, before we get into this story about this amazing woman, Ruth. For those of you here tonight who like to read romance novels or watch movies that end with and they lived happily ever after, then the book of Ruth is for you. Uh, this is Anne of Green Gables stuff. Okay, if any of you know what that is, I refuse to watch any of it, but my daughters were passionately interested in watching that whole disgusting series. <laughs> this thing reads like a movie script, honestly. The book of Ruth is just like a movie script. It's got a historical setting. It has a cast of characters. Uh, there's a crisis. Oh, no, not that. I mean, there's this moment. Is all going to be lost? Is there no hope? And then just in the nick of time, there is a miracle. And if you listen carefully, you can hear the violins in the background beginning to play. Oh, Yeah. I don't know how I got assigned this book. I honestly don't know. <laughs> this is, I have to tell you, this is hard for me right now. This is so contrary to my nature. But anyway, let's look at the setting. Let's look at the setting. Set the stage. Verse 1, chapter 1 in the book of Ruth. It came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. It's important that we pause and take in the significance of that verse. First of all, it's telling us the historical setting is when the judges were ruling. This is all happening at some point in the circle of pain. And actually, we know where in the circle this book is happening. It says there's a famine in the land at the time, which means that Israel has been bad, they have been sinful, they've been worshiping other gods, they've been immoral, they've done all the wrong things, and so God was trying to get their attention, trying to get them to repent by sending them a famine. In other words, he wasn't allowing rain to fall on the land, people couldn't plant crops, the crops died that were there, and so people were starving, trying to get them to, to stop Take account of where they're living and what they're doing. Repent and return to God. So that's where we are. We're in one of the downward cycle, the downward part of the circle of pain in this book. So we have that as the setting. The cast of characters, let's get introduced to them. Verses 1 through 5 as we continue. It says, a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. He and his wife had two sons and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malan and Chilion. Nice little family of four. They were Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. 
And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malan and Chilion also died, so the women or the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Let me just get something straight now. This is not Oprah. It's Orpah. So I want to just get that one out of the way, right? Okay, I understand that she was named after this Orpah, but they turned the letters around. So anyway, just a little historical thing there for free. So, Running from God. In this passage, there are two spiritual problems that are embedded in this passage. And so let me try and take a moment and describe those two problems. The first problem is that it's a bad idea to try and escape God's rod of correction. Uh, when I was thinking about this, I was reminded of, the, of a picture in my mind of a, oh, let's give him a 10-year-old. And he knows that he's done something bad. I mean, he's, he's done something at home. Maybe he broke a window or he did something that he knew he was in trouble for. And so he knows dad is coming. And he knows that it's a trip to the woodshed that awaits him. And so he makes this decision. I know I'm going to get my backside warmed. I think what I'm going to do is try to outrun him. And so that young kid starts running as fast as he can to outrun dad. But the problem is his dad always outruns the boy. And what that also means is dad is doubly ticked now because he ran. And so what that means now is when he ends up in the woodshed, this is not going to be a pleasant visit. That's exactly what Elimelech did for his, with his family. See, God's rod of correction was coming to the people of Israel for their sin. And so what he decided to do, he said, you know what, I'm out of here. I'll go, I'll, I'll go live over here in Moab. At least they got some crops and things over there. We can survive. We'll outlast God's discipline here. We're out of here. So we'll go live with the Moabites who just happen to be perennial enemies of Israel. So as we look at this map, we can see, okay, we're just going to go down there, uh, you know, 100 miles away, just uh, going to have a life all our own. We're going to be fed over there. The rest of the people in Israel, well, they can starve if they want, but we're, gonna get, we're not going we're not gonna to stand for this. There's another problem in this passage. Not only were they running from the rod of correction that God had, was meeting out on his people, the second problem is that Malan and Chilion decided to marry Moabite women. And that was something the law of Moses strictly forbade. You only were to marry within the, the nation of Israel. So there are two problems, two mistakes. They're running from God. The second thing is now they're marrying foreign women. It's interesting what happens. Not only does Elimelech die, but so do Malan and Chilion in the process of time. Okay, so they were running from what they assumed was going to be death because of a famine, and what did they find when they got to Moab? Death. Ten years later. Ten years now go by. They've lived outside of the land of Israel for ten years, and now you've got these three widows. And so Naomi decides, you know what, I think we're, we're, we need to go back to Bethlehem. I've got to go back to my own people. Face the music, 
try to make a life for myself somehow. And so we want to pick up the story in verse 6. It says, And then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Please notice that. What does that suggest? God had provided for the people now. Repentance had happened. He caused the rain to fall. Now we have some crops. The people are turning back to God. And now he's sending his blessing and rain. Therefore she went out from the place where she was. And her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them until they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Please note that. She understands that the loss in her family has been, is due to their disobedience to leave the land in the first place. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Okay, bring out the Kleenex. Okay, we got three women crying here. Uh, This is not good. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Okay, I need to take a deep breath right here. This next part's going to be hard. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. You know, I've actually heard brides say this at their weddings. At this point in the story, the hearts of girls and young women are strangely warmed. And the guys are thinking, can we please turn the channel and watch some football? (laughs) Am I right? Thank you. There's somebody else here that gets it. All right, thank you very much. I'm sorry to have to break it to you, brother, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. Okay, so they make the journey back to Bethlehem. Everybody's excited to see them. Oh, look, she's back. But she's still feeling the pain of God's rod of correction. Verse 20 and 21, she says, Do not call me Naomi. Her name literally means my delight. She says, Call me Mara, bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full. The Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? We need to understand there's a crisis here. This is really a a, a moment of crisis. Naomi realizes that the loss of her husband and sons was a result of God's discipline. She understood her husband's decision to run from God and escape the famine was a move in the wrong direction. She also knew that she was now in a completely hopeless situation. 
with no male heir to carry on the family name and with no husband or sons to provide her with food and shelter, she was destined for a life of depending upon the generosity of others. She was a widow. She's got a bag now. No heritage, no sons to provide for her. And this is where Ruth enters the story as the heroine. She is the one who comes to her rescue. Even though she's a foreign woman, she has now, I, I think we need to get this from the story, she has now chosen to become a convert to Israel, to the Jewish faith. She's now a worshiper by leaving her God, leaving her homeland, leaving her family, leaving everybody. Now she's going to live with the Jewish people, with the Hebrews. And she is now not only going to live with her mother-in-law, she says, let your God be my God. It's important that we understand this. She's now a part of the covenant community of Israel. Now, as we look at this, there's a couple of customs. We're going to turn to Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10, to look at a couple of customs that are going to save the day and deliver us from this terrible crisis of no one to carry on the family name. So how, does, how is God going to deliver this foreign woman and her mother-in-law from this hopeless situation? Leviticus 19, 9 and 10 describes a law of Moses that was handed down many centuries before. It says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger, or the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So this was actually... God's way of extending grace to those who didn't deserve it. He was making a way to provide for the poor people in the land of Israel for foreigners who might come and desire to be a part of the nation of Israel. And so he's telling every farmer, when you, when you harvest your crops, make sure to purposely leave some out there. Don't harvest the corners and don't go back for another harvest a second time just to glean what's left. Go through it once, leave the rest for the poor. Well, this is going to help save the day. And so we're going to find that Ruth, being this dutiful daughter-in-law, is now going to be the breadwinner for the family. She's going to go gleaning. Let's look at this in, verse, in chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2 begins this way. It says, There was a relative Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. Uh-oh, he just happens to be a relative. His name is Boaz. So Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads, glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field of the reapers. And she just happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Then Boaz said to Ruth, you will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. 
Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you've left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and don't, do not reproach her. Also, let green from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean. Don't, do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field of Boaz until the end of the barley harvest and wheat harvest and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Oh, this is almost too much. Now we got a hero, Boaz. He's a hero in this story, not only because of his generosity to provide for Ruth and her mother-in-law. And by the way, from the barley harvest to the wheat harvest, that was all during the summer months. That was three months he let this happen. She's gleaning for three months. So this is one of the customs that was handed down to Moses that dealt with the first problem. The first problem is how do we eat? And so we have the provision now from the God of Israel through the man Boaz. There was a second custom that was also handed down from Moses that's mentioned in Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 and 6. It's the law known as the law of the kinsman redeemer. It goes like this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel." Something that probably doesn't mean as much to us today as it did in ancient times, in biblical times, is it was exceedingly important that you had sons. Because it was the son that carried on the family name from generation to generation. Now in this particular case, we've got a doubly serious problem. Number one, Elimelech dies. He has two sons, but they both die. And so there's no one left to continue the family name of Elimelech. So according to Jewish custom then, you then went looking for the nearest relative who would perform the role of the kinsman redeemer, someone to continue this family name along. So it turns out that Boaz, as we've heard in the previous passage, happened to be a relative of Elimelech. And everyone is thinking, hooray! This is the solution to the problem. All right, but then we have a moment of tension in the story because while Boaz is a close relative, there's someone even more closely related than he. 
I wish we had an organ in the background that was, you know, okay. I'm trying to bring it here, okay, so work with me. After the wheat harvest was over, Ruth came to Boaz after three months of gleaning in his field and expressed her willingness to be his wife if he would be fulfilling, willing to fulfill the role of being a kinsman redeemer. I won't go into, the, this, this is where I had to draw the line, but you can read the story yourself. She, he's at the threshing floor, laying there asleep, and she goes and lays down at his feet, basically saying, I'm willing to be your bride. I, I can't bear to read it all, so you'll have to read that, okay? Hopefully this will inspire you to go home and open this Bible to this passage. Boaz agreed but pointed out that the man was a closer, there was a man who was a closer relative and he needed to be given the right, first right of refusal. And so it's at this moment we have the tension and the drama in the story. And here are the questions we're just wanting so badly to have answered. Would Boaz and Ruth become husband and wife? Would these two people of integrity get married and live happily ever after? Or would the other relative marry Ruth out of a sense of duty and he didn't love her anyway? I mean, okay, you feeling that? So Boaz, he's a man of integrity. And he actually goes to the nearer relative and presents the offer. He says, um, you know... We got this gal, Ruth, and uh, Elimelech needs someone to carry on the family name. So Boaz presented the opportunity to this near kinsman, and that man refused. He refused to accept the responsibility, fearing that eventually he would have to share his inheritance with another man's family when children were born to Ruth. So Boaz and Ruth were married along with the blessing of the village elders, and they bore, thankfully, a son who was called Obed. And they live happily ever after. And you hear the violins in the background. So why is this book in the Bible? Why is this book here? I think it's here for two reasons. The first reason is it's to prove to us that even in the midst of a crooked and perverse and corrupt generation, there was a man and a woman of integrity. There were people who chose to live with integrity, even though everybody around them weren't. The second reason this book is here is because of the name of that son, Obed. What we're about to learn is that he turns out to be one of the most significant people in the chain of historical events of people who lead to Jesus Christ. So I think it then brings us to the question I started with in the beginning. Does your life really matter? In the grand scheme of things, does your existence on earth really make a difference? Now, before I give you the answer to that question, which is yes, it matters, I want us to understand something from Ruth's point of view. All she knew is that she was this foreign woman. She went to Israel. 
got married, and had a son. She lived and she died. And she, in her lifetime, probably never understood the significance of her decision to leave her homeland and go to the land of Israel and marry this man, Boaz. But here we are, 3,000 years later, and we're about to find out how significant that one decision was. As we look at some lessons from the book of Ruth, we find the summary of the book. It ends this way. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of, her, of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, is, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid her on her bosom and she became a nurse to him. Also the, the women, the neighbor women gave him a name saying, There is a son, notice this, a son born to whom? Naomi. See, the family name of Elimelech was being carried on. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Oh, let's see. So that means Ruth is the great, is the what, grandmother? Great grandmother. Which is it? Great grandmother of King David. And this is so incredibly significant because as you look through the Old Testament, there are at least five times when the messianic lineage from Abraham on forward to Jesus was nearly broken, where that genealogical chain was nearly broken or compromised five times. And this is one of them in the book of Ruth. If Ruth hadn't been a woman of faith who was willing to leave her family and homeland and believe in the God of Israel, she would have never met Boaz and married him. The family line of Elimelech would have been lost forever. Obed wouldn't have been born. And if Obed hadn't been born, there would never have been a King David. And God's promise to David that from his house he would raise up a king who would rule and reign over God's kingdom forever would never have happened. Ruth never knew any of this. And we wouldn't have a New Testament today because Jesus wouldn't have been born and we would have no one to redeem us from sin and death. Ruth made a decision, a faith decision. And that one decision changed the course of history. So the next time you open the book of Matthew... Chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll jump to verse 16. It says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David. The son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Judah. And his brothers Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. And Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. And Aminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. And Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king, and jumping forward, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. If you would like an exciting study, look up those names. Tamar, a Canaanite woman. Rahab, a harlot from the city of Jericho. We skipped over Bathsheba, who was married to a Hittite named Uriah. 
and then Ruth. The point is, our lives matter. And the decisions we make in our lives matter. Far more than any of us could possibly comprehend. You know, we look at our brief little stay here on earth and we think, well, I just work at an everyday sort of job. I commute every day and I don't seem to really have that much significance. Let me just suggest to you, you don't know the rest of the story. You don't know the rest of the story that God intends to write through you. I want to make another observation. Did you notice that we never hear another word about Orpah? She went back to her own people. She wasn't willing to make a faith decision that her sister-in-law Ruth made. And because of that one decision, history was affected. Jesus himself knew the importance of his brief stay here on earth. In John 17, he prayed this to the Father. He said, 17 verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus had an assignment. His assignment was to be brought up in the city of Nazareth, be the son of a carpenter, be the breadwinner when his father Joseph died. He had to provide for his brothers and sisters. And then when he was 30 years old, he began his life of ministry, which lasted three and a half years. He was then betrayed, falsely accused, scourged, crucified, and buried in a borrowed tomb. How significant was that life? That single life lived in obedience and faith to God changed history and your eternal destiny. His life mattered and so does yours. So I want to conclude with a couple of lessons that we can take away from the book of Ruth. Lesson number one. Oh, by the way, here's another insight. How cool is it that she got a book of the Bible named after her? God wanted to underscore the importance of the decision, the faith decision that she made that day. But here's some lessons I take away. Number one, only God can redeem our lives even though we or others have made bad choices that have affected us. We can make bad choices, Elimelech did, or others can make bad choices that affect us. Regardless God can cause all things to work together for good for those who choose to love him. Number two, only God can make the plans he has for us come to pass and make our lives matter. Number three, we may never know how much our lives, lives mattered in the grand scheme of things until our life is over. I think one of the shocks, the pleasant surprises that we may have when we get to heaven is we're there before the throne and we look around and we see all these people and we ask Jesus, well, who are these? Oh, those are the people your life affected. And they're here today because of you. Well, I didn't know any of these people. Oh, it doesn't matter. Your life mattered. And your choices mattered. And all of these other people you see around here, they're here because of you. 
We may never know until our life is over. And finally, the one thing we can be sure of is that our life will only matter if we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and finish the work he sent us to do. We all have a faith decision to make. It's a decision that begins simply this way. Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I put my faith in you. I need you to be my Savior, to forgive me of my sins. Let me suggest another faith decision to you. Lord, I need to be baptized in water. I need to be willing to stand up and name the name of Jesus and be testifying to others, my friends and my family, that I'm just not a closet Christian, but I'm actually one who's standing up and saying, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus. That's a faith decision. It's a, and it's a decision of obedience. If you haven't been baptized in water, two weeks, you can do it right here. And we would love to celebrate that with you. God didn't make this thing hard. He just said, just keep saying yes and follow him. He'll take care of the rest. And so your life matters. You're not just an accident. And in the grand scheme of things, God has sent you here for just such a time as this. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? I want to close by asking you two questions. The first is simple. The first question I want to ask you is, have you, if you haven't received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, but you know that you need to, you've never been born again, you've never personally made the step of faith where you said, Lord Jesus, I need you to forgive me of my sins, I want to invite you into my life right now to be my Savior and my Lord. If that's you, would you be courageous enough to just lift up your hand so I can see you and I just want to pray for you. If you know tonight, you need to take that step of faith and receive the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior. Just lift your hand if that's you. I want to ask another question. When I started talking about being baptized in water, did the Holy Spirit start stirring in you, in your heart? And were you all of a sudden feeling like, I think he's talking about me? And if you need to be baptized in water and you haven't done this, but you feel like God has just nudged you and you need to do that, would you just lift up your hand so I can pray for you and encourage you to take that step of faith? If that's something you need to do in your life. Good. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the lessons that we've learned tonight from this book and from this example, this incredible woman who left everything to follow you, to live for you. And Lord, I see in this book how you open doors to provide for her. You open doors to continue a family name when there was seemingly no hope, no way it could be, the problem could be solved. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that with you nothing is impossible. 
and that you always respond whenever we take a step of faith and a step of obedience to do your will. And so, Lord, I pray that in the days to come, we would all be found faithful to do the things that you've sent us here to do for just such a time as this. In Jesus' name, and we say together, amen. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.